Welcome to Hillside Baptist Church Podcast. We are a church that is committed to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is our privilege to open God's word with you. It is our prayer that you receive the message from the man of God with an open heart. That through God's word, you are encouraged and equipped to face life's challenges. But most importantly, it is our prayer that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior if you haven't already. If you'd like to connect with us, you can do so at hillsidebc.com, find us on Facebook, or send us an email at info at hillsidebc.com. We hope that you benefit from today's message and that you would share it with a friend. But let's now open our hearts and God's Word. Thank you so much. God bless you tonight. Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Luke and chapter number 5. And I'd like to begin reading tonight from Luke chapter 5 and verse number 5. And as you're turning there, I'd certainly like to say thank you so much. What a joy it's been for me to be these days at Hillside Baptist Church. And I'm grateful. I'm thankful for what God is doing here. And if I, I just take a moment tonight and encourage you to just keep going forward for Christ. I, I certainly have enjoyed the fellowship this week with your pastor. God's given you a wonderful preacher and a wonderful preacher's wife and children as well. Just a special family. And I, I trust you know that. And, and if I could just encourage you to join Brother Bingham and, and and just say together we're going to do a work for Christ in these days. You know, I know it's easy to watch the news and get discouraged. The answer, of course, don't watch the news. But, but uh, you know, I know it's awfully easy to look at this old world and, and just to see it's all falling apart. Well, of course it is. The Bible said it was going to fall apart. Why would we expect anything else? And yet in the height of World War II, with the reports coming in from Europe, and, and the days very discouraging, it was a housewife out of Pittsburgh who wrote the words, in times like these, we need the Savior. In times like these, we need the Bible. Could I just encourage you to join your preacher and say, preacher, together, let's stand up for Christ in these wicked times. And let's just be a great testimony to beacon for the Lord Jesus Christ to have his light shine in this part of Missouri, around America and around the world for the glory of God. I'm grateful for what God has done and just join your preacher and say, by the grace of God, uh, the wonderful days are ahead until Jesus comes. God bless you. Thank you for being so gracious and kind to me in these days and, and to keep on laboring for him. The hour's late, the time is short. Why, it's time to wake out of our sleep for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Let's be found busy when the trumpet sounds. You have your Bible tonight to the book of Luke in chapter number 5. It was a few months earlier that Andrew brought his brother Peter to the Lord Jesus Christ. As the crow flies, it would be about an 18-mile journey from the village of Bethsaida to the other side of the Jordan River. The problem, of course, is we don't fly like crows fly, so, so it was a long journey. that could be done in a day, but it would be a long, long day. And of course, on the other side of the Jordan, that's where Peter met the Savior. His life was forever changed. Not only did he get the gift of God, which is eternal life, but Peter got a brand new name. Everything changes the day he met Christ. Well, after he knows the Lord, it's back to Bethsaida, back to that little fishing village, and back to, and I believe the indication is, an incredibly lucrative fishing business. 
You know, it would seem that Peter really had this thing going, and even if he didn't, by the middle of Luke chapter 5, he really would. And I mean, he goes back home to that little fishing village and that crusty old fisherman gets his partners and out they go to the Sea of Galilee where they do their work day after day. And it was a few months later that this time it wasn't Peter going to Jesus, it was Jesus going to Peter. And that morning he comes by the shores of Galilee and the Lord Jesus has an appointment with Peter, James, and John and they will never, never be the same. Andrew said, we have found the Messiah, which being interpreted is the Christ. Well, there comes a day in Luke chapter 5 where Simon Peter's life will never be the same. If you're able physically, could I invite you to stand together with me tonight as we look at Luke chapter 5 and verse number 5. The Bible says that Simon, that's the old name for Peter, Simon answering said unto him, and notice, Master, we have toiled all the night. Go down, if you would, to verse number 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. On this particular morning, for Simon Peter, Jesus will go from being his master to his Lord. Father, we ask for your help now as we go to the mighty words of God. I pray if someone in this room has never been born into your family, that tonight would be the night they are saved from sin and hell. That tonight they would call upon the name of Christ and be saved. And, and then, Lord, I pray for your children tonight that the mighty word of God would break up the fallow ground in our hearts and lives. And, and may this place see a revival tonight of a people of God surrendering their all to their Savior. Help us now, for we come boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. In verse number 1, the Bible tells us it all begins when it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him, that is Jesus, to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Sometimes it's called Gennesaret, sometimes Tiberias, sometimes it's the Sea of Galilee, it's all the same place. And on that particular morning, the Word of God tells us, yet again, the multitudes have gathered to see Jesus. You know, they really are an incredible study in the book of Luke. I find as long as there are free meals and free miracles, there's a big crowd. But one day the meals and the miracles go away. And the Bible tells us the crowd that once was 20,000 has turned into a crowd of 12. You know, for all the church attitudes and the minister's thinking that says we need to get the latest church growth techniques, I don't think you're going to find that in the Bible. But what you will find in the Bible is church reduction techniques, if you're interested. Jesus can tell you how to turn a crowd from 20,000 into about 12. And it didn't take very long. And he didn't do it by the course of modern religion. He did it by some incredibly powerful preaching. From 20 down to 12. And the Bible tells us it was so bad, Jesus looked at the twelve and said, will you also go away? And you know, Simon Peter, when he got it wrong, he really got it wrong. But when that guy got it right, he really got it right. He stepped to the plate and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. My, did Peter ever knock it out of the park that day? And then the Lord Jesus, after whittling the crowd from 20,000 down to 12, said, haven't I chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? 
I mean, it was never about the crowds. It was never about the masses. And the reason is because Jesus could peer right into the hearts of men while you and I are impressed with the outward appearance and you and I are impressed by a big multitude and you and I are impressed by what the world can produce. The Lord Jesus looks right on the heart and, and when he looks into our hearts tonight, he sees something very different than the game we play on the outside. And so now the Bible tells us one more time the multitudes have gathered. This time they're at the shores of Galilee. And, and I love the way it goes in verse number 1. The people pressed upon him to hear the word of God. There really is a double meaning in that verse, isn't there? Obviously they have come to hear Jesus preach that morning. And every time the Lord Jesus opens his mouth, it flows from his tongue the very words of God. Because Jesus Christ is God. But you know, it is not just that Jesus speaks the Word of God. In John 1, in verse number 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ not only speaks the Word of God, Jesus Christ is the Word of God. That's why we love our Bible so much, one of many reasons. Because if you could take the Bible and turn the Bible into a man, you would have the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you could take the man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and turn him into a book, you would have the Bible. The Bible stands as the written Word of God, and my Savior, the Lord Jesus, is the living Word of God. So on that morning when the people pushed to the shores of Galilee, and indeed it was the perfect place to preach, they had a nice little slope to the mountainside. The hundreds, maybe thousands of people could sit there. It was just the perfect spot for the Word of God to preach the Word of God. And of course, Jesus isn't going to disappoint him on this day. The Bible says in verse number 2, they saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were going out of them and were washing their nets. So for the first time, we get a picture of Peter's fishing business. If you've got the idea that Peter and his buddies had a little rowboat and, and they went out a ways into the sea and they took their uh, uh, fishing pole from Walmart, jumped it in the water, you got the wrong idea. This is a massive business. There were ships that would be connected by a series. Notice the word nets is plural. They called them trammel nets. There was a series of nets. Two boats would have one net held up by buoys on the top of the water. A second net would be held down by weights beneath the water. And there was a third net that would be attached almost like a wall. And as those ships, and they were huge boats for the day, as they made their way through the Sea of Galilee, those nets would collect a lot of fish. At least hopefully they would collect a lot of fish. This is not the story of a guy with a boat or two. We are looking at a gentleman, Mr. Peter, who has a very lucrative and a very successful fishing business. And that morning the Bible tells us that, that Jesus entered into one of the ships, which was Simon. Ever the gentleman, the Lord Jesus Christ now, is going to make a request from him. And I'm always fascinated by verse number 3, that Jesus comes to Simon now, and, and look at the word, he prayed him, really. I mean, the truth of the matter is, the water in that lake was owned by Jesus Christ. And for the record, the wood that made those boats, that was Jesus' wood. And for the record, the fish that were out in the sea that hadn't made their way in the boat that night, but the fish that were in the sea, they happened to be owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass where the people sat belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ. He owns it all, and yet ever the gentleman, respectfully, the Lord Jesus prayed him, Peter, would you do me a favor? Well, you know, in America, 
we get favors. But in America, it's nothing like it is in the Middle East. You know, you need to return a favor. I need to return a favor. But in the Middle East, you really need to return a favor. And so Peter was pretty much obligated. I mean, obviously, he's not going to say no to Jesus anyhow. But, but a few verses earlier in Luke chapter 4, well, the Bible tells us, I guess you might say, Peter owed Jesus because after all, Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And again, maybe he didn't. I'm not exactly sure how that wants to work. And you might want to look at that a little differently. But, but no, no. The Lord Jesus graciously heals Peter's mother-in-law. And, and so now when the Lord Jesus said, may I borrow your boat? Well, of course Peter's going to let him do that. And the Bible tells us they thrust out a little from land. And in verse number 5, the Bible tells I'm sorry, verse 3, that he sat down and taught the people out of the... Now, where do we go wrong on this? Excuse me, but you know in the Bible, when they would go in the synagogue, or in a case like this, when Jesus taught the people, the preacher sat down. You know, usually the people stood up, but the preacher sat down. Somewhere in the course of time, we got this backwards, Brother Bingham. I don't know where we got off the rails. I don't know why I'm standing here and you're all sitting down there tonight. Where did that get wrong? Maybe that's why we don't know revival. I don't know. But, but in Bible times, the teacher would always sit down. And Jesus sat down and taught the people out of the ship. And in verse number 4, when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. Now, you can read that verse, and I can read that verse, and, and we can watch the story and follow the story. But you know, while we can read it, there is something that we can't hear. What we can't hear in the background of verse number four are the moans and the groans of Peter's fishing companions. You know, in verse number four, when he said, Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets. That, that little word, your, is a plural word. It is not just Jesus talking to Peter. Jesus is talking to the entire cadre of the fishing business. He is talking to a bunch of men now. You know, in America, we don't have a plural way to say you, unless you're in the South and you say y'all. But, but other than that, we don't have a way to do this. But you know, in the Bible, it's very clear. The Lord Jesus isn't just saying, Peter, you need to go take your boat and, and have a good day out on the lake. But no, Peter, you need to go and you need to get your buddies and the entire business needs to turn around and go back and not just by the shores out into the deep waters of Galilee. I mean these men had fished all night long and that we are talking about professional fishermen. I mean we are talking about old salts now. I mean, we're talking about a crusty old men from the shores of Galilee and now this Jesus of Nazareth. <clears throat> that would be Jesus of the hill country. This Jesus of Nazareth, could I use the word, the landlubber? He comes and starts telling these fishermen what to do. Do you, do you know how preposterous this is? Well, number one, the reason they go and they fish all night is because there are no fish to catch during the day. Nobody wants to work all night if they could work all day. They go out there all night long because the fish are silent during the day. There are no fish out in the deep. If anything, they have come to the shores where the springs come down the hills. Why, there are no fish to be found. There are no fish to catch. And after a long, long night of catching nothing... Now this landlubber from the hills of Nazareth is telling them to go out into the deep. Do you know what this would be like? What this would be like? This would be like some old country boy. You know, from some place up in the hills of Tennessee. 
Or, or maybe even worse, you know, it's even worse, the hills of North Carolina. I mean, this would be like some old country boy, you know, it takes him about 30 minutes to say hello, you know. This would be like Jed Clampett or something making his way to some little village on the coast of Maine and showing up to all these professional lobstermen who know the Atlantic Ocean like they know the back of their hand. This would be like an old country boy from Tennessee telling the lobstermen of Maine how to do their job. I got to tell you, that's not going to go over very well. And when this Jesus of Nazareth comes, and by the way, these guys had fished all night, and they hadn't caught a thing. And, and I, I'm not a fisherman, you know, I'm, I'm just not a good enough Christian to go out there and do nothing all day, so I'm just not. But I mean, I'm for you guys that are. But you know, I don't know much about fishing, but I do think I know enough to know that if a professional fisherman has been out on the lake all night long, and they come back in the morning and they hadn't caught a thing, there's a word for that. It's called bad mood. And you know, all these guys want to do is wash the nets because they didn't catch any fish, but that doesn't mean they didn't catch a lot of debris. All they want to do is wash the nets, hang the nets, get out of there, go home, go to bed, and go try it tomorrow night. And now the Lord Jesus comes and says, and oh, by the way, Peter, thank you for letting me use the boat. Now what I want you to do is get all your crew. I want you to get the boats off the docks. I want you to hook up those massive nets. And not here, I want you to go out into the deep. And then I want you to let down your nets into the deep. This landlubber from Nazareth is telling these professional fishermen how to do their job. I got to tell you, this is a tough spot for Peter. I mean, you come to verse number five, and Peter's between a rock and a hard place. On one side, here's his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, saying, Peter, I want you to launch out into the deep. What you can't see in the Bible are the glares of Peter's fishing buddies as they are staring daggers through Peter. And on one side, you can almost feel the look on the faces as all of these professional fishermen are saying, he doesn't know what he's talking about. The last thing we want to do right now is launch out into the deep. And so on one side, there's Jesus. On the other side, here's all these professionals. And in the middle of both of them stands Peter. Peter's got a big problem. So in verse number 5, notice how he handles this. Simon answering said unto him, Master. Master. The title Master, very, very common in the Word of God because it was very common in the language of the New Testament. The title Master is pretty much saying, you are of higher status than me. The title master was often used for the king. It would be used in politics. It would be used in the military. The commander of the ship would be called the master. In the schoolroom, the teacher would be a master. In the synagogue, the rabbi is the master. So when Peter is saying master, and, and I don't know, because as I said, we can read it, but we can't hear what it sounded like. I wonder if Peter just didn't kind of hold that a little bit longer and a little louder. Master. You are of higher rank than me. You are more important than I am. You know things that I don't know. And maybe it's like Peter is pulling rank, and it's not his own rank now. He said, Mister, you're the boss. We have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. And if he didn't emphasize the word master, I promise you, with his buddy staring daggers at him, he must have emphasized these words. Nevertheless, at thy word, <laughs> not my word, his word, Gentlemen, this isn't my idea. The master has told us to go out into the deep. 
nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. You know, there's a little bit of attitude in that verse. And maybe there's a reason, because Peter's been fishing all night, and they haven't caught a thing but trouble. And now they just want to go to bed. They just want to go try again tomorrow. And now all this labor and all this work, a very unpopular thing. Peter most likely doesn't want to go. Certainly nobody else wants to go. There just could be a little bit of attitude in, Master, you're the boss, you're higher rank, the commander-in-chief is telling me what to do. So, Master... At thy word, not my idea, we will let down the net. And you know the story in verse number 6. When they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes in their net break. They never had a catch like this. You say, well, how do you know? Because the net was ready to break. Had they had a catch like this before, they would have had bigger and better nets. The Bible tells us in verse 7, they beckoned unto their partners which were in the other ship that they should come and help them. Yeah, I find that word fascinating. They beckoned. You notice they didn't call out. They beckoned. They're given some sign language now. You over here right now. I mean, they are beckoning to their partners. It's kind of like the gold rush in California. When a guy struck it rich, when he made his way back to town, he did everything he can to put on a poker face to make sure nobody knows what happens. Well, there's no hiding it now. There's a whole lot of sign language going on. Do you realize what's happened here? I mean, obviously, Jesus, the landlubber from the hills of Nazareth, he knows something about this lake that nobody else knows, you think? But do you know what this is for Peter? I mean, we understand they're about ready to catch a, a fish now that, that are going to break the nets and the boat can't even carry them. This has never happened before because if it did, they'd have bigger nets and bigger boats. I mean, this is the greatest day of all time, but forget that. This is even better. I mean, if this was the stock market, this thing just went right through the roof. If this was an investment, Peter just tripled it in one moment. I mean, it's not just that Peter's got a great catch for today. Peter knows where to go. And not only that, he knows where to go during the daytime. I mean, there must be an underground spring. There must be a reason, but who cares? I mean, could I use the word? Peter hit the jackpot. And the guy knows right where it is. In other words, it's not just today. It's for the rest of my life. <coughs> this is already quite the business. But now it's going to be more than that. I, Peter is going to be the number one fisherman. Peter's business is going to the moon. I, Peter's ready to take off. I mean, he has hit the jackpot and he knows where the mother load is. Peter has got it made for the rest of his life. Well... The Bible tells us in verse number 7, they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. And in verse number 8, Peter evidently is back in the shore now. And, and when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. A few minutes earlier, it was Master. You're of higher rank than me. You're more important than me. I respect you and I honor you. But now, now, Peter says to Jesus, you are my Lord. In the New Testament, the title Lord is used in two different ways. First, the title Lord is used like we often use the word sir. It would often be used in a very respectful term, a, a respectful way of speaking to somebody. However, of course, the word Lord could mean, number one, I show you great honor and respect. Or the word Lord could mean you are now my Lord and my ruler and my king. You rule over me. 
So which one is it, Peter? Is Peter saying, I show great respect to you, sir? Or is Peter saying, now I give you the control of my life. You are the Lord who rules over, and we know, don't we? Because in verse number 8, it says, Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees. For a Jewish man to bow down before anyone would be a gross sin. It would be a horrific sin. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. When this Jewish man, Peter, is bowing his knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is not saying, you are worthy of respect. He is not simply saying, sir, I honor you. Peter is saying, now you are the Lord and you are the king and you are the ruler of my life. From you are my master to you are my Lord. From I have great respect for you to here are the keys to my life. You get to run me until I die. So what does that mean? You see, I don't think in America, in churches, we have a real respect for this word, Lord. And the reason is because we use it so frivolously. I mean, in America, it's nothing for people to show up for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning and wave their hands back and forth and sway in the auditorium and, and they're going to sing, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And at the end of the service, the preacher says, wave to Jesus and tell him he's Lord. And everybody walks out the door and, and for the rest of the week, it's all about me, me, I, I. The Bible is never read. The Son of God is never honored. Jesus Christ doesn't enter into a person's life. And because they think for 30 minutes, I sang that Jesus is Lord, everything must be all right. And that's not what the Bible's talking about. You see, people, remember the old days, especially how old I am. I am so old that I actually remember the days of bumper sticker Christianity. It's getting back there, you know. You drive down the highway and somebody have a bumper sticker. Hulk, if you love Jesus. I saw one one day that said, tithe if you love Jesus. Anybody can honk. I thought that was pretty good. But you know, from bumper sticker Christianity, we graduated in the 90s to t-shirt Christianity and sweatshirt Christianity. And of course, now we have graduated or been demoted, depending on your outlook, to the thing of social media Christianity. And as long as you blog it once in a while, and as long as you tweet it once in a while, why, everything's got to be good. I mean, I say it, and I sing it, and I go to church, and I quote it. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. But you know, the multitudes that follow Jesus, and they come for the meals and the miracles, the multitudes are there, and the Lord Jesus looked at him one day and said, Why call ye me Lord? Lord. And do not the things that I say. See, we got this idea that as long as I say, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you, everything is good. But Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, I was rather stunned a few weeks ago studying in the book of Deuteronomy to come to a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that says, because the Lord loved thy fathers. And why that is so stunning is that is the first time in the Bible where it says God loves people. If you're counting at home, that would be 119,000 plus words before you ever read, God loves your fathers. A few chapters later, it's God loves his people. The first time. Don't look at me like that. I'm telling you, it's the, the, the truth. You go 119,000 words before the Lord even says it. But you know what you have all over Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers? 
you have God demonstrating his love. Hello, these people are, ah, I know the love of God in the Old Testament. Really? Really? Well, well, you know, take a third grade reading course and go read the book of Genesis. And if you don't think there's any love, you have never read the Noah story. You have never read the Abel story. Excuse me, you must not know who Abraham is. Why, have you ever heard of somebody named Joseph? Really? Really? Moses, the children of Israel in Egypt? There's no love in the Old Testament? What, what book are you reading? But just because we don't have some sloppy little t-shirt or a bumper sticker on the back of a heavenly chariot, the God of the Bible is far more interested in demonstrating his love than in saying it. And I know that's highly offensive in the world in which we live, but the reverse is true. It never says in the Bible, if you love me, wear a t-shirt. It never says in the Bible, if you love me, tweet a tweet. But it does say, if you love me, keep my commandments. Why call you me Lord, Lord? And do not the things that I say. It's awfully easy for you and for me to show up to church on Sunday morning, wave a little hand towards heaven, sing a chorus or two, listen to a little preaching, and say, Jesus, I love you, and then be on our way to live the rest of the week for me, me, me. But if we love him, I don't mean we just respect him. I don't mean he's just the master. But if we're willing to bow our knee and to love him with all of our heart, if Jesus is Lord, it means something. Would you just look right back to our text in Luke chapter 5? And, and when Simon Peter installs Jesus as the Lord and the ruler, the king of his life, Peter is making four simple choices. What does it mean when Jesus is Lord? Not when Jesus is master, not when I have great respect for him, not when I defer to him or I honor him, no. No, when I or when you, when we bow our knee to him and say, you are now the king and the ruler of my life, it means that you and I are making some choices. Choice number one means I will live according to his word. In verse number five, Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down that there's no human reason to do this. I am going to launch out into the deep. We're going to let down the nets because you said so. And you know, that's what happens when Jesus is the Lord. We come to the Bible and we love the Bible and we know the Bible and we hide the Bible in our hearts. If we love Jesus, we build our lives on the Bible. You build Hillside Baptist Church on the Bible. We build our families, our marriages on the Bible. No, no, it's impossible to say, I love Jesus, Jesus is Lord, and then put the Bible on the shelf. Who do you think you're fooling? If you love me, keep my commandments. If we don't know the commandments, if we don't care enough about the commandments, if we have zero desire to read them, study them, know them, and most importantly, place them into our hearts and place them into our lives, then all the songs and all the t-shirts and all the tweets, it's all frivolous and phony. Because if Jesus Christ is my Lord, then I'm living my life by the Bible. So show me somebody who walks home from church on Sunday. They take their Bible and stick it up there on the shelf. And there it sits until next Sunday morning. So they can blow some dust off the cover. And they can walk in the door of the building with a Bible, a prop under their arms. You show me somebody for whom this book 
is not a part of their life, their family, their marriage, their home. This book is not a part of their business, their pleasures, their entertainment. This book does not tell them how to live their life. If the Bible is not important to someone, then no matter what they sing, no matter what they write, no matter what they wear, Jesus Christ is not Lord. When Jesus goes from being master to Lord, Number one, I choose to live according to his word. Notice number two, when Jesus goes from master to Lord, he is worth more than all earthly treasure. Would you look at verse number six again? And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net break. And verse number nine, he was astonished. You know, I'm I just going to go on the record and say, for a crusty old fisherman who has spent his life on the Sea of Galilee to be astonished, that just doesn't happen every day. He was astonished in all that were with him at the great draft of the fishes which they had taken. This is a jackpot. This is a catch for the ages. Do you realize what's happened here? You know, it is not like the Lord Jesus broke Peter. It's not like Peter's on his back in a hospital room. It's not like Jesus put him into bankruptcy. No, no, the Lord doesn't come and say, okay, Peter, now that you've come to the end of your dreams and you have come to the end of your rope and Peter, you've fallen off the wall, and all the king's horses and all the king's psychiatrists can't put you back together again. He didn't say, Peter, your life is a mess, so I'll fix it. The Lord Jesus basically said, Peter, not only is today the greatest financial day of your life, but you now know right where to go to run the top dog business in the whole region. Three million people live there. So Peter... It is not like Jesus saying, you got nowhere else to go. The Lord Jesus is saying, you can be an incredibly successful businessman fishing for fish, or you can spend the rest of your life living for me. Jesus is going to make this a real tough choice. He didn't break him. He didn't bankrupt him. He didn't leave him with no other options. Peter has option number one, I can fall on my knees and install Jesus Christ as the Lord and the ruler of my life, or I can be the best businessman in the Sea of Galilee. I can make oodles of money. That's the choice you have to make if Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, it means I'd rather have him than all the treasures and the pleasures of the world. The Bible word a few chapters later is that you cannot serve God and mammon. Peter, you cannot serve your fishing business and serve the Lord. You're going to have to have one or the other. You know, a lot of modern Bibles change the word mammon to money, but that's not the word. Mammon is a whole lot more than money. Mammon is stuff. If Jesus is Lord, you've got to decide. I'd rather have silver and gold or I'd rather have him, but it's one or the other. I'd rather do what pleases me or do what pleases him. It's one or the other. I want all the beautiful houses. I want all the lands. I want all the toys. I want all the treasures. You can have that or you can have Jesus, but you can't serve both. And when Jesus goes from being master to Lord, we'd rather have him. In the early 1930s, a young man was sitting at an office of a recording executive in New York City. 
Remember in the early 30s, we're talking about the, the, the de depression at its worst. With a country starving, with a world starving. This young man sat at the office of a recording executive. On the table in front of him was a contract. And all he had to do in the middle of the depression was pick up a pen and sign that contract. And he would be incredibly wealthy. I mean, there are people that can sing. This guy could sing. All you got to do is sign the paper. He looked at the executive. He said, sir, I need to tell you I'm a Christian. And I'm happy to sing what you want me to sing, but I need to sing for the Lord as well. And the guy kind of laughed at that. He said, no, 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 son. He said, if you sign that, we're going to make you incredibly wealthy, but we get to tell you what to sing. And Christian music is not on the agenda. The young man looked at that contract. He said, could I have a few days to think about it? And, and the executive said, of course. And it so happened that weekend, he was heading home to Ottawa, Canada, where he grew up. And, and he had one of those moms, you know, just one of those moms who knows there's a time to preach at your kid and then there's a time not to preach. And mom knew that this was one of those moments he had to make his own mind up. So mom never said a word, but she did what mothers do. She wrote a little poem, and she just happened to leave that poem next to the old upright piano in their house because she knew that after a while, every time he comes home, he'd always wind up at the piano. He could play beautifully, but more than that, he just loved to sing. And sure enough, after he had done whatever he did when he came back, he found himself by that piano and he began to play. And, and then as I saw that little piece of paper, the, the words, the poem his mother had written, and, and he stopped playing and he picked up that pen, uh, uh, that, that, that piece of paper, and he, he read those words and he said, for the rest of my life, this never happened again. But he said within 10 minutes, there was a melody that perfectly matched those words. But he said, far more importantly... There was a choice that was made. That young man went back to New York City and he went to the executive. He said, thank you, but, but no thank you. I'm afraid I'm going to have to turn you down. He said he walked out thinking, well, that's it. I'll be a poor, poor bean counter for the rest of my life. But little did he know the Lord had something else in mind. The guy who turned down the contract because he had to sing for Christ, well, you may have heard his name once or twice. His name was George Beverly Jay. And you know, the words that his mom had written became a song we still sing tonight. The song goes like this, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses and lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. And I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. If Jesus is Lord, it means there's a choice to make. It means that we have to decide I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold or I'd rather have silver and gold than Jesus. But you have to decide one way or the other. And when Simon Peter is about ready to install Jesus as the ruler of his life, for Simon Peter, he is making a choice. And he is saying, I am choosing to build my life on the Word of God. And you can almost hear him singing, I'd rather have Jesus than anything 
this world affords. You can't have it both ways. You can't live for stuff and have Jesus as Lord. No matter what the bumper sticker says, Peter has a third choice to make. He chooses to live according to Jesus' word. He chooses to love him more than all the stuff of the world. But number three, when we choose to make Jesus Lord, it means we see our own unworthiness. You see it in verse number eight. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Really? You know, the closer we get to Jesus, the less impressed we are with ourselves. I noticed that Peter is not entering into a negotiation. And Peter is not saying, you know, Lord, let's see if we can't meet halfway. You watch Peter in Luke chapter 5, you can't help but think of Isaiah, back in Isaiah 6. For just that brief instant, his eyes gazed on the pure, absolute holiness of God. And all of a sudden, the house was filled with smoke, and the doorposts began to move. And God said, Isaiah, in your condition, not only are you unable to come here, you are even unable to look upon me, because God is so clean and holy. And then, then the Lord purged him and cleansed him. And that's when he heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? You know, when I read that, I imagine Isaiah looking around. I wonder who he's talking to. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? You mean somebody gets to be in the business of serving Jesus? You mean somebody can give their life for Christ? You mean somebody actually, actually can live for the King of Kings? Hey, I, I, I watch him kind of look around. Who's, and then all of a sudden it dawns on him. He's talking to me. He's talking to me. Hey, here am I, right here, right here. Don't go next door. Here am I, right here, right now. All hands off. I give myself to my Savior and to my King. I am the nothing Jesus is the everything. I am smaller than small. Jesus is the all and in all. Not long ago, I was preaching in Papua New Guinea, and we had a great, great time in services. And, and one night, we're in a, a rather large city called Leh, and, and some churches joined the church I was preaching at that night, and, and the auditorium was just full. And when you get a full auditorium of African people or a Papua New Guinean people, Brother, you hear singing like you've never heard. And they stood up to sing one of the grandest songs that has ever been written. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. And as they stood up to sing, of course, they're not singing in English, they're singing in pidgin, the language of Papua New Guinea. And, and <coughs> I don't really know how to explain pidgin. You know, it's a little English, a little Spanish, a little French, a little this, a little of that, and a little of just about everything. And, and no matter what your language is, you know, you can pick out like one every 30 words or so. And, and we were there, and they're singing this grand, grand hymn, How Great Thou Art. And in the pidgin language, you could understand it, for an English guy anyway. And when we would sing, How Great Thou Art, they are singing God. You are number one. And yet when they sang that, I, I got to tell you, it just kind of sounded cheap to me. You know, I, I'm thinking in my American eyes, you know, somebody just wins a football game, we're number one. You know, it's to say, Lord, you're number one. It, it just sounded cheap. But I've done this a few times and know that languages from one word to another can be very different. And, and it wasn't that big of a deal until, 
until the preacher stood up when we were done singing the song and he said, God is number one and we, and you know, I said, okay, he's going to say we are number two. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, okay, you know, it's not a big deal, I guess, but this is so cheap. But that's not what he said. God is number one, and we are number zero. That's it. We are a big fat nothing. Isaiah said, I'm dirty and I'm unclean. Peter said, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, the closer you and I draw to Jesus, the less impressed we are with ourselves. The closer we get to the purity of the Lamb of God, the more we see how deficient and dirty we really are. And when Jesus becomes the Lord and the ruler and the king of my, not just the master, when he is the Lord and the ruler of my life, it means I am the zero and he is everything. You see now why it's easier just to get with the multitudes and call him Lord, Lord? Do the things that you say. <laughs> We're not going there, are we? I mean, you know, Brother Bingham, you're not one of these legalists, are you? Why call you me Lord, Lord? And do not the things that I say. Peter knows if he is the Lord and the ruler of my life, I live my life according to the Bible. From this moment on, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. And it means that I am the zero. Jesus is all in and all. Do you see why when Jesus starts to preach like this in Luke 14, the crowd goes from 20,000 down to 11? That's not what people want to hear. But you know, he's not done, is he? Just in case we miss something here, Peter said, when Jesus becomes the Lord and the ruler and the king of my life, I live my life on the Bible. I love him more than stuff. I see how unworthy I am. And then number four, it means that I simply say yes to his call. Verse number 10, so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. Interesting, that word partners. Back in verse number seven, they were fishing partners, business partners. But in verse number 10, it's a distinct word meaning fellowship partners. Yeah, Peter, James, and John would make their way to the altar this morning. Peter, James, and John would fall on their knees before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and they would have new brothers. These three men, their lives would never be the same. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. You know, we usually think, okay, he's catching fish, so now he's catching men like he's catching fish. But, but actually, this is a different word. And catching men came out of their military world. Catching men would be the story of the soldier that would go and capture the prisoner. And oftentimes they would torture them, but they would be imprisoned for the rest of their lives. But the Lord Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to capture the souls of men, not to imprison them, but to set them free. Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. From henceforth thou shalt catch men. You know what this means? From this day forward, this is what it means to have Jesus as Lord. Okay, forget the slogans, t-shirts, forget the choruses, forget the waving at the Lord, and raise your hand if you love him, clap your hands for Jesus. No, no, none of that stuff now. If Jesus is Lord, it means he gets to run my life. 
No, no, from this day forward, it means for Peter that you are no longer in the business of catching fish. You are now in the business of catching men. So from this moment forward, every single hour of every single day, of every month, of every year, of every decade, for the rest of his life, Jesus gets to tell him what to do. Now, this is how you draw a crowd of 20,000 and turn it into 11. Because a lot of people want what Jesus can give me. And a lot of people want what Jesus can do for me. But, but you mean Jesus is Lord means that he gets to run the rest of my life? He gets to tell me where to go to school. He gets to tell me what to do for business. He gets to tell me who to marry and who not to marry. He gets to tell me who my friends are. He gets to tell me what my habits are. He gets to tell me how to dress, how to walk, how to talk, how to sing. He gets to run my life. That's exactly what it means. And until one day Peter would die, in fact, Jesus even took care of that for him. He said, one day, Peter, you're going to stretch out your arms. They're going to carry you to a place, a cross, where you don't want to go, and you're going to die. So for every single day of the rest of his life, until he died, Jesus told them what to do. He is Lord. He is, uh, is he really? Because if we're going to sing tonight, Jesus is Lord, and then we're going to walk out those doors saying, I'm running my life. Then he is not Lord. No matter what we tweet, no matter what we wear, no matter what's on the back of the truck. If Jesus is Lord, he gets to run my life. That's why when you get to verse number 11, it's rather stunning, isn't it? They didn't have to sing a lot of verses of invitation. And I find it fascinating that Jesus never twists anybody's arms, never puts them on a guilt trip. He is always fair to say this is what it means. There's no hidden agenda. But humans have a choice to make. And in verse 11, when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Yep, that's what it means. If Jesus is Lord, I am living my life according to the Bible. If Jesus Christ is Lord, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. If Jesus is Lord, he is the all in the all, and I am absolutely nothing. And if Jesus is Lord, he gets to run the rest of my life until I die. So do you want Jesus as Lord? I call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say. One of the more powerful books I've read recently is the story of Richard Wombrandt, Tortured for Christ. And Richard Wombrandt talks about a day when the communists had taken over his country of Romania, and in the parliament building they gathered ministers from virtually every denomination imaginable across the land. There were 4,000 priests and pastors and ministers, and they all come into the parliament building in Romania to install Joseph Stalin as the president of their religious congress. They came, and one by one, these religious leaders and these ministers and these bishops, they stood up and said, well, communism and Christianity, they certainly work together. And they praised and they extolled this wicked man, Joseph Stalin, 
from whose hand literally dripped the blood of born-again people. One after another, one after another stood up until finally Richard Wombrandt's wife, her name was Sabina, she leaned over to her husband and she said, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. Amen. They are spitting in his face. Richard Wombrandt leaned over to his wife and said, if I do so, you're going to lose your husband. She leaned over and said, I don't wish to have a coward for a husband. I'm glad my wife's not here tonight. <laughs> what can I tell you? I don't want to cut, really. Richard Wombrandt stood up and it was being broadcast by radio across the land. And that day he exalted the Lord Jesus Christ. He exposed communism as the enemy of Jesus, as the enemy of Christianity. He stood up boldly for Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And when he was done, Richard Wombrandt knew precisely what that meant. There would be two imprisonments totaling 14 years. Three of those years he was in solitary confinement. He described it as a cell 12 feet underground. No lights, no windows. He said he was often beaten and tortured, physically mutilated. His flesh on one day would be burnt. The next day they would lock him in an icebox. They'd beat the soles of his feet until the flesh wore off. And when he summed up his torture for Christ, he did it with these words. There are no words to describe the pain. If Jesus Christ is Lord, anything, anywhere, anytime, he gets to run my life. So it's awfully easy to have Jesus as master. What a great teacher. He is so honorable. He is so wonderful. But if Jesus is going to be the Lord and the King and the ruler of your life and my life, that means we live according to the Bible. I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. It means he is number one and I am number zero. And it means that for the rest of my life, until I die, Jesus gets to run everything. You want a Lord? Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? And someone could sit here and I say, who is Jesus to demand this? Who is Jesus to make such claims on Peter's life or in someone in this building's life? Who is this Jesus? He is the one who died on a cross for you and for me. When I was a child of hell, a child of Satan, when I was lost, when I was a heartbeat away from hell, Jesus died for my sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again. And the Bible says tonight there is only one way to be saved. Jesus is not a door, he is the door. Jesus is not part of the way, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is not a part of salvation. He is salvation. Is He your Savior tonight? You say, I don't know from the Bible that I'm going to heaven. I don't know from the Bible that Jesus Christ has taken my sins away tonight. Pastor Bingham would love to have somebody sit down in a quiet spot with an open Bible.
And you can see for yourself how Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. You can read it for yourself. The great invitation of the Bible. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. God's invitation to be saved is for you. If you don't know him, would you let us help you from the scriptures tonight? You know him as your Savior. The Lord Jesus looks down at Hillside Baptist Church. It's time to make a choice. You're going to walk out the door with a master? Or are you willing to say, Jesus, you are now the Lord? Thank you so much for joining us today. It is such a privilege to share God's word with you. If God has spoken to your heart because of the message, stop right now and respond to whatever it is God is asking of you. Don't wait another minute. You can pray right where you're at and ask God for his help. If this message has helped you in any way, we would love to hear from you. Let us know if you have any questions or we can help you with your decision. Jesus asked his disciples, Who do ye say that I am? And he offers the same question to you today. What would your answer be?